Hello and welcome back to the Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms. Today we have a very special extract. It is a passage from the much-anticipated new novel from the Man Booker Prize winning Julian Barnes. His new book is called The Only Story. It follows 19-year-old Paul as he navigates an unconventional relationship and asks the question, would you rather love the more and suffer the more, or love the less and suffer the less? Taken from The Only Story, coming in February, here is Julian Barnes himself to read for you. Thank you very much. Um, That's the title of my book. Um, The epigraph which I only discovered um, halfway through the writing of the book, even though I'm a lexicographer, an ex-lexicographer myself, is uh, Dr. Johnson's definition of a novel in his Dictionary of the English Language of 1755. And it goes, a novel, a small, ta- a small tale, comma, normally of love. <laughs> and this is how the book begins. Would you rather love the more and suffer the more, or love the less and suffer the less? That is, I think, finally, the only real question. You may point out correctly that it isn't a real question, because we don't have the choice. If we had the choice, then there would be a question, but we don't, so there isn't. Who can control how much they love? If you can control it, then it isn't love. I don't know what you call it instead, but it isn't love. Most of us have only one story to tell. I don't mean that only one thing happens to us in our lives. There are countless events which we turn into countless stories. But there's only one that matters, only one finally worth telling. This is mine. But here's the first problem. If this is your only story, then it's the one you have most often told and retold, even if, as is the case here, mainly to yourself. The question then is, do all these retellings bring you closer to the truth of what happened or move you further away? I'm not sure. One test might be whether, as the years pass, you come out better from your own story or worse. To come out worse might indicate that you're being more truthful. On the other hand, there is the danger of being retrospectively anti-heroic. Making yourself out to have behaved worse than you actually did can be a form of self-praise. So I shall have to be careful. Well, I have learnt to become careful over the years. As careful now as I was careless then. Or do I mean carefree? Can a word have two opposites? The time, the place, the social milieu. I'm not sure how important they are in stories about love. Perhaps in the old days, in the classics, where there are battles between love and duty, love and religion, love and family, love and the state. This isn't one of those stories. But still, if you insist, the time, more than 50 years ago, The place, about 15 miles south of London, the milieu, stockbroker belt, as they called it. Not that I ever met a stockbroker in all my years there. Detached houses, some half-timbered, some tile-hung. Hedges of privet, laurel and beech. 
roads with gutters as yet unencumbered by yellow lines and residence parking bays. Our particular zone of suburban sprawl was cutely known as the village, and decades previously it might possibly have counted as one. There was a green line bus stop, a zebra crossing with Belisha beacons, a post office, a church unoriginally named after St Michael, a pub, a general store, chemist, hairdresser, a petrol station which did elementary car repairs. Right, that's my state agent's duties concluded. And there was a real one ten miles away. And one other thing, don't ask me about the weather. I don't much remember what the weather has been like during my life. True, I can remember how hot sun gave greater impetus to sex, how sudden snow delighted, and how cold, damp days set off those early symptoms that eventually led to a double hip replacement. But nothing significant in my life ever happened during, let alone because of, weather. So, if you don't mind, meteorology will play no part in my story. Though you are free to deduce, when I am found playing grass court tennis, that it was neither raining nor snowing at the time. The tennis club. Who would have thought that it might begin there? Growing up, I regarded the place as merely an outdoor branch of the young conservatives. I owned a racket and had played a bit, just as I could bowl a few bit overs of off-spin and turn out, of, uh, turn out as a goalkeeper of solid yet occasionally reckless temperament. I was competitive at sport without being unduly talented. At the end of my first year at university, I was at home for three months, visibly and unrepentantly bored. Those of the same age today will find it hard to imagine the laboriousness of communication back then. Most of my friends were far-flung, and by some unexpressed but clear parental mandate, use of the telephone was discouraged. A letter, and then a letter in reply. It was all slow-paced and lonely. My mother, perhaps hoping that I would meet a nice blonde Christine or a sparky black ringleted Virginia, in either case, one of reliable, if not too pronounced, conservative tendencies, suggested I might like to join the tennis club. She would even sub me for it. I laughed silently at the motivation. The one thing I was not going to do with my existence was end up in suburbia with a tennis wife and 2.4 children and watch them in turn find their mates at the club and so on, down some echoing enfilade of mirrors into an endless privet and laurel future. When I accepted my mother's offer, it was in a spirit of nothing but satire. After three weeks or so of my temporary membership, there was a Lucky Dip Mixed Doubles tournament. The pairings were drawn by Lot. Later, I remember thinking, Lot is another name for destiny, isn't it? I was paired with Mrs. Susan McLeod. She was, I guessed, somewhere in her forties, with her hair pulled back by a ribbon, revealing her ears, which I failed to notice at the time. A white tennis dress with green trim, and a line of green buttons down the front of the bodice. She was almost exactly my height, which is five feet nine, if I am lying and adding an inch. Which side do you prefer, she asked. Side? 
Forehand or backhand? Don't really mind. You take the forehand to begin with then. In our first match, I scampered around a lot, thinking it my job to take more of the balls. And at first, when at the net, would do a quarter turn to see how my partner was coping and if and how the ball was coming back. But it always did come back, with smoothly hit ground strokes. So I stopped turning, relaxed, and found myself really, really wanting to win, which we did, 6-2. As we sat with glasses of lemon barley water, I said, thanks for saving my arse. I was referring to the number of times I had lurched across the net in order to intercept, only to miss the ball and put Mrs. McLeod off. The phrase is, well played, partner. Her eyes were grey-blue, her smile steady. And try serving from a bit wider, it opens up the angles. I nodded, accepting the advice while feeling no jab to my ego. Anything else? The most, valid, the most vulnerable spot in doubles is always down the middle. Thanks, Mrs. McLeod. Susan. Does your, does your husband play? My husband, Mr. E.P., she laughed. No, golf's his game. I think it's plain unsporting to hit a stationary ball, don't you agree? <laughs> there was too much in this answer for me to unpack at once, so I just gave a nod and a quiet grunt. Trouble up next, she warned me. County level. On their way down, but no free gifts. And there weren't any. We were well beaten for all my intense scurrying. When I tried to protect us down the middle, the ball went wide. When I covered the angles, it was thumped down the centre line. Afterwards, we sat on a bench and fed our rackets into their presses. Mine was a Dunlop Maxply, hers a graze. I'm sorry I let you down, I said. No one let anyone down. I think my problem may be that I'm tactically naive. Yeah, yes, it was a bit pompous, but even so, I was surprised by her giggles. You're a case, she said. I'm going to have to call you Casey. I smiled. I liked the idea of being a case. As we went our separate ways to shower, I said, Would you like a lift? I've got a car. She looked at me sideways. Well, I wouldn't want a lift if you hadn't got a car. <laughs> that would be counterproductive. There was something in the way she said it that made it impossible to take offence. But what about your reputation? My reputation, I answered. I don't think I've got one. Oh dear, we'll have to get you one then. Every young man should have a reputation. Thank you. That was a short extract from The Only Story by Julian Barnes coming this February. We are giving away a few physical copies of this book to anyone who wants to review our podcast on iTunes this month. So let us know what you thought and you will be in with a chance of winning one of those. As always, thank you so much for listening. Do subscribe to hear more extracts and author interviews like that one. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>